Hey folks, Mackenzie Lambert here, your host for Mac and the Movies, where we look at everything from art house to grindhouse. It is officially October, so we can look forward to Halloween without fear of aggressive scrutiny. What better way to celebrate the holiday with the horror series it shares a name with? Halloween. Over the next three episodes, I will be looking at the main entries in the series. This episode will go through the original 1978 film, the 1981 sequel, and the 1982 season of The Witch. Then, in two weeks, we'll look at Halloween 4, 5, and 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. Halloween weekend, we will close with Halloween H2O, Halloween Resurrection, and the 2018 Halloween Retcon. No Halloween kills unless people really, really want me to review it. Uh, let me know in the comments or on social media. And I have recovered the three tenors I originally intended to use for the final Wheel of Fulci. John and myself will be joined by special guest Joe Spears to talk about our top 10 all-time favorite movies, as well as discuss those of Mr. Hill. We have a packed show for you folks, so without further ado, let's get started. Halloween night, a small American town, 15 years ago. Michael? I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. I think he'll come back. Exploring uncharted territory. And totally charted. Just 
In 1963, a young boy by the name of Michael Myers brutally murders his sister. For 15 years, he is locked up in a psychiatric hospital under the watch of Dr. Sam Loomis. Over that decade and a half, Loomis studies him, tries to understand him, then realizes he can never be released. October 30th, 1978, while arriving to transfer Michaels for an upcoming court appearance, Myers escapes and returns to his home, Haddonfield, Illinois. Sam Loomis arrives the next day in Haddonfield to find Myers with the help of local law enforcement. That night, Myers slaughters some of the local teenagers until there is only Laurie Strode. There is no other way to describe the first Halloween other than as a horror classic. Despite growing trend of claiming the film is overrated, it remains a favorite of many horror buffs and receives regular play this time of year. The film brought in huge profits, becoming one of the highest grossing independent movies of all time. The genesis of the film goes back to the 1974 Bob Clark classic, Black Christmas. John Carpenter had reached out to Clark for permission to write a sequel to the holiday slasher. Clark granted permission, and the germ of the Black Christmas sequel would later morph into the Halloween film we now have. The lack of gore in favor of atmosphere and suspense was from a few factors. One was the influence of Albert Hitchcock's Psycho, after all, Norman Bates and Michael Myers share the same murder weapon, a butcher's knife. Second was the negative reaction to the bloody murder of Kathy in Assault on Precinct 13. Carpenter decided to cut back on the bloodshed for this one. The film shows its low budget, the limited lighting in the nighttime scenes, crew serving as stand-ins. A perfect example is producer Deborah Hill being used as young Michael Myers in the opening POV shots. John Carpenter was doing fake shemping before the term was coined by Sam Raimi with Evil Dead. John Carpenter providing the iconic music score is another example of the low budget, but yet all of this works. I had uh, discussed monster introductions with Leanna Kersner back in episode 69. I put young Michael Myers as my number one because I thought it was the best example of how you introduce a villainous character. We don't know whose eyes we are looking through until the end of the scene, and the reveal is this seemingly normal child was the one who we saw committing this grisly murder. 
Jamie Lee Curtis made her feature film debut in Halloween as one of the all-time great final girls, Laurie Strode. Carpenter cast her for her name in relation to Janet Lee. Turns out she was a heck of an actress, too. As we'll see in later films, she is one of the few final girls to make repeat returns among the big three horror franchises. Donald Pleasance was cast in the role of Dr. Sam Loomis. We almost had Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing in the role, but Pleasance won out. Lee has gone on record saying he regretted not taking the role. Pleasance was a renowned actor prior to Halloween thanks to performances in classics like You Only Live Twice, The Great Escape, and Watch Out, We Are Mad. Four actors shemmed for Michael Myers throughout the production, yet it was Nick Castle who wore the painted Captain Kirk mask and the dark blue jumpsuit for much of the production. He wasn't even planning on taking an active role, he was just on set watching the production take place. Castle himself will go on to be a noted director in his own right. The Last Starfighter, Dennis the Menace, and Major Payne are the highlights of his directorial efforts. There's PJ Souls and her perky tits, Charles Cyphers, and Nancy Kies in supporting roles. The one casting that everyone seems to overlook is Arthur Mallet, who plays the graveyard caretaker. Yet, many of my generation will remember him as Toodles from Hook. It's snowing! Honestly, there's not much more to say about John Carpenter's Halloween that hasn't been said. 43 years later, it is still watched by many. Because of its title, it will forever have a consistent presence in popular culture. Carpenter may be sick and tired of talking about it, but will never get tired of watching it. I shot him six times! I shot him in the heart! He's not human! Universal Pictures presents Halloween 2. More of the night he came home. Who is it? There was nothing within him, neither conscience nor reason, that wasn't even remotely human. Some kind of a joke? I've been trick or treated to death tonight. You don't know what death is. Janet, go tell Mr. Garrett we're having trouble with the phones. There is no place to hide. He will always find you. What's this? It's a Celtic word. It means the Lord of the Dead.
hour of the night he came home. Halloween 2 opens exactly where the previous movie ended. We see Michael Myers shot several times, then falls from the second floor. Dr. Loomis goes on to check on Michael's body and sees he's gone. Seeing this puts Loomis in a panicked frenzy. Myers is out and about the neighborhood, stealing a knife from an elderly couple, then stabs a random team who's home alone. While Loomis is checking around Hattonfield, Laurie is taken to the local hospital. It's not long before the news reports on the Myers killings and announces Laurie survived, being taken care of at the Haddonfield Hospital. Michael makes a beeline straight for the hospital. There he slaughters everyone he comes across. Soon there is a revelation and Loomis must get to the hospital to save Laurie from Michael. Halloween 2 is the result of three movies. One obviously being the first Halloween and its phenomenal box office performance. So much of a success that producer Mustafa Akkad remained a producer of the film series from 1978 all the way to his passing in 2005. His name was slapped on each entry he was associated with. The second movie is Friday the 13th. That movie had some gory kills thanks to the expertise of one Tom Savini. Compare the kills in the first Halloween to the kills in Halloween 2, and Halloween 2 is very much fitting of the slasher trend of the early 80s. You even get a homage to the hot water kill from Argento's Deep Red. But it was that change from explicit gore instead of atmosphere and suspense that turned a lot of people off from this film. The third film was The Empire Strikes Back. That film gave us one of the all-time great plot twists. Darth Vader is the father of series protagonist Luke Skywalker. You don't think that didn't play a part in the reveal of Lori being Michael's sister? Um, if you do, I've got beachfront property in Idaho I can sell you. It was critically lambasted. It was made for more money, but made much less than the previous film. The 1978 budget of $300,000 was raised uh, for the Halloween 2 production to $2.5 million. The box office for the first Halloween was a range of 60 to 70 million, while the box office for Halloween 2 only made about 25.5 million in North America. Uh, no number as far as the markets outside of North America. Plus, the definitive ending of Myers burning and Sam Loomis dying in an explosion was Carpenter's way of bringing the Myers story to a close. Rick Rosenthal would take over the directorial role. Uh, he made a few films, but his only other film of note would be Halloween H2O. Then the series would be dormant until the Rob Zombie atrocities, which gave way for the 2018 retcon boot. Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Pleasance reprise their roles of Laurie and Dr. Loomis, respectively. Charles Cyphers gets third billing for his 20 minutes before he's no longer figured in the plot. Nancy Keyes, I can, never, I can never tell how to pronounce this, if it's Keyes or Kyes, so Nancy Kyes has a corpse cameo. The role of Michael Myers is filled by stuntman Dick Warlock. With the film borrowing from Friday the 13th, one wouldn't be surprised for Warlock to ape Steve Deskowitz's Sackhead Jason from Part 2. However, Warlock plays Michael with the slow, steady movement of Nick Castle, but he's also more aggressive. He is long past level 1 Evil Within mode, he's now on level 2 Evil Within. 
Uh, those who play Dead by Daylight will know what I'm talking about. We'll actually see Warlock unmasked in the next entry in the series. The only other actor of note is Lance Guest, who plays paramedic Jimmy. Guest would work under Nick Castle in The Last Starfighter. Keep an eye out for SNL legend Dana Carvey in a glorified extra role being talked to by a news reporter. Halloween 2 isn't bad, but it comes off as filmmaking by committee. It was like the producers took a buffet approach, you know, picking bits of Friday the 13th, maybe a little bit of Empire Strikes Back, and just a pinch of deep red. It does feel like a cash grab and a product of its time. Unfortunately, it's just not a strong product. about this Cochran? All I can tell you, mister, is watch out. Season He's watching you, friend, I guarantee you that. Trick or treat, trick or treat. Hey, Mr. Cochran, just what is the final process? Fellas, I was just kidding. Witchcraft. To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. Hey! Where are they taking you? They're taking her to the factory. I want a mask. Can I have a mask? Uh, just what I had in mind for you, little buddy. Why, Congress? Why? Do I need a reason? I've got nothing here to indicate there was ever a body at all. Operator, this is an emergency. I do love a good joke, and this is the best ever. A joke on the children. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. You've got to believe me. They're going to kill us. All of us. Stop it! The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. Happy Halloween. Stop it! Halloween 3. Season of the Witch. The night no one comes home. Halloween 3 opens on Saturday, October 23rd in Northern California. A man is running down a road, frequently looking behind him. He makes it to a junkyard and hides as a vehicle passes by. After a close call, he makes it to a gas station holding a mask and gives an ominous warning. The gas station attendant takes him to the hospital. A nearby television plays a commercial for Silver Shamrock Masks. 
where the man comes to and warns someone is going to kill them all. That night, the man is killed by someone wearing a suit. Dr. Chalice pursues the killer, but before he can find out anything, the killer self-immolates himself. The next day, the man brought in is identified by his daughter, Ellie. The pair of Ellie and Dr. Chalice end up investigating the Silver Shamrock Company and the town of Santa Mira. Things only get weirder from there. For years, I've heard nothing but how much Halloween 3 season of which is the worst movie in the Halloween series and one of the worst movies ever made in general. To that, I say Bupkiss. I really enjoyed this movie. I've seen my share of worst movies ever made, and I wouldn't put Halloween 3 anywhere near that accolade. The Amazing Bulk, Black Cougar, Food Fight, The Legend of Titanic. Go on a 10-hour binge of Scott Shaw movies and then tell me Halloween 3 Season of the Witch is still the worst movie you've ever seen. The story itself is so batshit insane. Killer Halloween masks, androids that bleed orange juice, a drill to the head off screen, a town that gave us Nilbog almost a decade before Troll 2. I love how off the rails this film gets. People may be wondering how this is part of the Halloween series. John Carpenter had the idea of doing an anthology series where each movie took place on Halloween and told a different story. With the original Halloween being a huge success, that idea was put on the back burner, with Halloween 2 being put into production. After the then-definitive demise of Myers and Loomis, Carpenter and co-producer Deborah Hill opted to tell a different story with Halloween 3. Directorial duties were put on Carpenter collaborator Tommy Lee Wallace. Wallace was a bandmate with Carpenter and Nick Castle with the Coupe de Villes. If you want to see this band in action, watch the music video for the theme from Big Trouble and Little China. You will not regret it. Wallace directed a few films of note, including Fright Night 2 and the made-for-TV adaptation of Stephen King's It, starring Tim Curry in his iconic turn as Pennywise. John Carpenter helped with ghostwriting, he did the music, collaborating with Alan Holworth, and produced alongside Deborah Hill, Mustafa Akkad, and Dino De Laurentiis, a noted figure in film distribution. Speaking of Deborah Hill, she not only worked with Carpenter on six films, but she also produced Cronenberg's adaptation of The Dead Zone, the film adaptation of the board game Clue, Adventures in Babysitting, Big Top Peewee, and Terry Gilliam's The Fisher King. Good on her! Tom Atkins was a regular TV actor before making his feature film debut in John Carpenter's The Fog. He would be a regular in 80s classics like Escape from New York, Creep Show, Night of the Creeps, Lethal Weapon, and Maniac Cop. Tom Atkins as Dr. Chalice comes off as an unlikable character, yet we have to accept him as the hero of the film. I can't help but think Ash Williams has a little bit of Dr. Chalice in him. Stacy Nelkin donned the role of Ellie, the daughter of the man murdered at the start of the film. She's fine in the role, yet I don't buy into the significant age gap romance between Chalice and her. Nelkin, similar to Atkins, got her start on television before transitioning to film. The Monty Python collaboration Yellowbeard and the Woody Allen comedy Bullets Over Broadway are some of her top credits. Dan O'Hearley was the sinister Connell Cochran the mastermind behind Silver Shamrock. He's great in the role, throwing on the Irish charm, very charismatic as a horror movie version of a Bond villain. 
O'Harely would later appear in The Last Starfighter and the first two RoboCop films. The secondary roles were filled to the brim with talent. Nancy Kyes returns, but in a different role from her turn in the original Halloween. Al Barry plays the man chased in the beginning, but he is also known as the unfortunate Dr. Gruber in the cold open of Stuart Gordon's Reanimator. Jimmy Lee Curtis and Tommy Lee Wallace make voiceover cameos. Dick Warlock, Halloween 2's Michael Myers, plays one of Cochrane's henchmen, getting the best kill in the film by ripping a guy's head off like he was Sub-Zero in Mortal Kombat. He's so badass, even when he's killed, he pops up on two more occasions as an android follower of Cochrane. I love Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Michael Myers or no Michael Myers, this is a great break in the series before it gets entrapped in the repetitive tropes of the 80s slasher genre. Give Halloween 3 a true chance to impress and entertain you. This is a far better movie than most people make it out to be. Count me as a defender of this particular season of The Witch. And that finishes this look at the Halloween films. Next time, I will review the next three entries in the series. Halloween 4, Return of Michael Myers. Halloween 5, Revenge of Michael Myers. And Halloween 6, Curse of Michael Myers. Let's see how the series fared after everyone wanted Myers back. And now, the three tenors, as promised. The all-time top ten films for John, guests Joe Spears, Rob Hill, and myself. Enjoy. Hey folks, Mackenzie Lambert here, uh, joined uh, with a few guests uh, this, e- uh, this evening, not just with our regular favorite John Cleveland. Hey everybody. But we now have a, a fourth tenor, uh, Mr. Joe Spears. Hi guys. Uh, we are going to be doing uh, a special one here, our all-time top ten favorite films. Uh, we're going to be including my list, Joe's list, John's, and even Mr. Hill's list, uh, which is in his uh, book, uh, Top Ten Lists Movies. So we're going to go ahead and get right just get right into this. Uh, I expect a lot of impassioned uh, responses in this one. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Other things you kind of have to justify, like, do is this better? Is this? This is just what we feel. It's mm-hmm. this my favorite movie, or my third or fifth or tenth favorite movie. There's no rhyme or reason to any of these. They just are. Yep. So many options. Just so, so many. So options. many. Oh, yes. uh, all right. Let's go ahead and take a look first at Mr. Hill's uh, top ten favorites, which. Uh, after the henchman one, uh, uh, some of his choices. Well, just not the henchman one, but so many of his yeah. choices are out of left field. But this is the one where I can't really comment on his yeah. choices. They are just what they are. Yep. And also, too, we got to consider this book is probably a good five years old, so he may have changed it since then. But we <laughs> spoiler alert: we'll I don't think any know. MCU movie is going to be on <laughs> no. here, folks. Yeah. No. All right. So the author's top ten: Spirited Away. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, Miyazaki. He's just one of the regulars. Yeah. 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 Uh, number nine, The Seven Samurai. A f- fantastic film, arguably one of the best mm-hmm. of all time. Uh, number eight, this is one I'm not familiar with, The Awful Truth. I, 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 I want to say it sounds familiar, but it, that's a vague title that could be any number of dramas. Yeah. 
Uh, number seven, Kind Hearts and Coronets. I have no clue whatsoever. <laughs> uh, it's an older film. I've never seen it because it's not something I think I'd sit down and watch. But hey, whatever. Mm -hmm. All right, here's one we can all agree on. Evil Dead 2. Amazing sure. film. Oh, Amazing yeah. film. Yeah. Great film. Yeah. Uh, Tokyo Story. Again, a slightly, I think, 70s, late 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. It's it's good, yeah. but meh, two weeks are wrong. All right, now here, okay, I got to agree. This is an undeniable classic. Brazil. Oh, fantastic it's, film. Yeah. Fantastic film. Uh, and now we're getting to some of the three greatest movies ever made. Uh, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. It's no argument here. No, argument no, here, no here, there's no. nothing to be said. Yeah. Uh, number two, Star Wars A New Hope. Not my cup of tea, but no, I, can, no. I can see it. I can see it. Yeah. I, I would say that probably his 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 nostalgia pick. Yeah, that's yeah. that's fair. Uh, and lastly, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Again, one of the film? yeah one mm -hmm. of the greatest films ever made. Oh, yeah. So, you know what? A, a, a much better list this time around. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I yeah. think that, you know, and again, even if it was, you know, and, uh, you know, Annie. You know, whatever he wants to pick. Yeah. Like, it's his list, whatever mm -hmm. he wants to do. So, All right, so uh, let's go ahead and have our special guest, Joe Spears. Uh, we'll let him go first uh, for joining us here. Yes. Read up. Sure. Up yeah. uh, I started my list off at number 10 with Glory, because I think it's a it's a long movie, and I think that a war movie has to be on there, because they're they're kind of made in, in this the scope of, like, an epic. You know, there's a lot of emotions, there's a lot of things involved, and with epic, or with Glory, um, one of the things that I liked is that the the person in charge of things uh, goes to work with the soldiers and realizes, well, he knows that the soldiers aren't ready. Mm -hmm. Everybody else thinks they're ready, and that's kind of the way war is. People sign up, they're like, yeah, I'm ready to go do this, and he soon realizes that they are not ready at all. <laughs> they're not ready for the pressures of war, they're not ready for... Uh, what's going to happen to them, and they're not ready to see what they're about to see. So it's not, I really enjoy it. Doesn't that gloss film. over war like something like the Patriot would with yeah. Mel Gibson. Yeah, which, yeah, it do, yeah. It doesn't venerate it as mm -hmm. a, the spectacular, the pinnacle of human experience. Yeah. It does express what it truly is, and that's hell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a great film. Um, at number nine, I have Pulp Fiction. I feel like Quentin Tarantino should be on these lists, but I'm a little bit of a fanboy, so mm -hmm. I understand. <laughs> oh yeah, just yeah. one for the list was kind of a rule that I wanted to have. I didn't want to have a list of Tarantino films. That's fair. But I enjoy Pulp Fiction because I always want to know what's in the box. <laughs> you can make an interesting movie about a light in a box, and it's fantastic. Yeah. And, of course, there's Samuel Jackson. He blows that movie away, and there's yeah. just a lot of quotable oh. parts of that movie. It's oh. a great film. Yeah, Quentin Tarantino being very notable for his dialogue. And, that and is, his soundscape, too. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And his violence. Mm -hmm. That movie makes a wallet famous. It does, it does. At number eight is The Dark Knight. I personally like uh, oh, yeah. Joker. Mm -hmm. I, I like what they did with the, the villain. Of course, it's Heath Ledger's uh, best performance, in my opinion. Um, it's just a really great film. It's a, You get almost in the mind of a crazy actor more than you really want to with that film, and maybe that's what's so unnerving about watching it. It gets a little lecture-heavy, but at the same time, those lectures are just genuinely interesting, especially yeah. from Michael Caine as Alfred. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that... I. I think it'd be difficult to say if you wanted to write a list of the greatest superhero movies ever made and mm -hmm. that wasn't in your top three, you and I have a fundamental disagreement of what superhero movies or mm -hmm. just film is. He's a great villain, definitely. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Number seven, I had a little trouble picking. I had uh, Goodfellas and A Bronx Tale, but ultimately I mm -hmm. came out with A Bronx Tale because Goodfellas really? is a great movie, mm -hmm. but I liked... The one thing that pushed me over the top with that one was in A Bronx Tale, you get to see... Um, things from a different perspective. You see a kid who views kind of a, a mob boss as the the pinnacle of life. He is God. That's what he wants over his his life. That's his goal of his life. But as he grows up, 
he starts seeing little things, little things that, well, maybe he's not invincible. Maybe he really is a flawed person. Maybe this isn't the greatest thing. Mm -hmm. And then you see that perspective from the mob boss himself. Um, he asked him a question, is it better to be loved or feared? And the mob boss said it's better to be both, and it's a very hard balance to strike. So I like that perspective from the the what is usually seen as like a, a, a glorious position as being mm -hmm. a mob boss, where you have all this power, but he shows you that it's not so great. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Again, it doesn't it it. it it doesn't sugarcoat things. It shows it. It breaks down the idealism that is inherent in uh, criminality. Sometimes mm -hmm. I think it's a it's a good pick. Yeah. Good pick. He even goes so far as to say that it's it's a choice that he made, but it's not necessarily a choice that he would remake. It's for him because he's too far gone, so to speak. That he's in that role, and you just can't get out of something like that. So it's yeah. it's nice to see that kind of point of view. Yeah. Uh, for number six, I picked Million Dollar Baby. I think uh, Clint Eastwood is a, an extremely uh, good actor and in a lot of his movies, so it was hard to just pick one of his movies for the list again. But I like the... Uh, in that movie, you see a fighter that's probably past their prime. Um, that's what she's being told the whole first one of that movie, but she's got a dream that she's going after, and, and Clint Eastwood uh, is, is resisting it all the way, but he sees potential in her, and he wants her to, to flourish. And, and the things that he's seen so many times, he knows they're going to come to flourishing because, you know, as all, all fighters get hurt, and it's it's a brutal thing to be involved in, and he doesn't want to do it, but he ends up doing it, and they make a really good pair. Yeah. And it's a nice contrast considering where Clint Eastwood started. It was like in Westerns yeah. and Don Siegel, like the Very Harry films, and now later in his career, he's really telling stories about humanity like the Sully film that he, the Sully yeah. Sullenberg film the the Mule which I just got on DVD which I want to check out looks yeah. really good so it's it's nice that just seeing the evolution of Eastwood over the course of his career yeah I mean I, I think he's probably the greatest director of all time and I can say that based on he hasn't made a bad film mm -hmm. and I, I mean of course you know there's a uh, Akira Kurosawa uh, Kubrick there's so many other greats but I end up putting him just slightly above because I hate to say it, but Kubrick and Akira Kurosawa have both made a film I did not enjoy. Mm. I have never seen an Eastwood film I did not enjoy, and I think Million Dollar Baby is probably his best, his best work as a director, um, arguably his best work as an actor. So that's that's it's a very compelling film. I also love to point out is like it's my favorite boxing movie, and people are like what? <laughs> and I'm like. Yeah. Not Rocky, not Raging Bull. No, it's no. amazing. It's an amazing movie. Yeah. It's, it's tough to watch at the end, for sure. Oh, absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. So now we're down to the top five. Yeah. Uh, number five for me is probably going to be an odd pick for you guys, but um, I love Black Dynamite. I think <laughs> that movie is full of quotable lines. It's it's just great. I, I mean, there's a lot of things that you look at, and you're like, yeah, that's never going to happen. But it's just... The hilarity of that movie, I, for me, I can never watch that movie no matter how bad of a mood I'm in. I always end that movie on a better mood. It's just the way that movie is. I love that movie. Sheer entertainment. Mm -hmm. Not every film in the world has to be this dire epic telling you this life story. Sometimes you just want to smile. Yep. Yep. And you know, glad, I'm glad you said that, John, because my number four pick is Fearless. <laughs> it's a right. deadly film. It's about martial arts. It's it's great. It's a stark contrast to Black Dynamite. But I love this film because it it again it has it has a good message behind it that uh, this martial arts master in his 20s thinks he, that he has all he needs to know, and he soon realizes that that isn't true at all. 
<laughs> interesting. It's an interesting take on that film. All right. The martial arts is great in that movie. I love the fight scenes. I, I love the, the drama behind it. And there's not a lot of dialogue as compared to other movies. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty long movie. Sure. And it's full of a lot of visual candy. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, my number three would be uh, The Matrix. The Matrix was... Oh, yeah. The first movie, I like the first movie a lot. I, it's, yeah. it's the subject matter that... I've been interested a lot with um, AI coming to fruition in kind of our times that everybody's talking about how it's going to change life and, and this kind of thing. And that's kind of what The Matrix was, that your uh, life could be a simulation. Mm -hmm. You never yeah. know what's out there. And I, I like the, the questions that it brings to, to mind when you're watching the film. So yeah. it's it's more for me that kind of thing than the martial arts, which which was good. Mm -hmm. but it's, it's a really good philosophy to it. Yeah. 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 And the movies that stole so many camera tricks from that film. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, it stole a lot from others, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, it's past. But what it did is it indoctrinated the American viewer mm -hmm. into that, the wire foo, and that yeah. whole different cinematic scope of films where now we, like, I don't know how many times I'll hear somebody saying, like, oh, that movie's just makes, ripping off The Matrix. I'm like, yeah, do you? Do you know how many movies the Matrix ripped off? off? Yeah. <laughs> but it was that point. It was the still. It needed to import that. It was the movie for people who didn't want to read subtitles in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yes. Well, it, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon wouldn't be what it is without the Matrix. I think, unfortunately. Actually, the, what's no? I mean, it's it's yeah. beloved. Like in retrospect, like I'm people sure going back and looking yeah, for it. Yeah. 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 Kind of gives it that modern spin where it starts introducing guns and mm -hmm. it could be uh, this huge technological problem in the background. You could just be in the simulation mm -hmm. and you're you're in pods and stuff. Yeah. So it's it's more of like the modern kind of crouching tiger and dragon. I think it's the best sci-fi film of that decade. It's great. Yeah. It starts bringing up questions. It was a good film to end the, the decade on, too. Yes, yes. Brings up a lot of questions that weren't really in the forefront at the time. So it's yeah. kind of, that's, that's why I like it so much. It, yeah. it kind of changes the scene a little bit. Yep. My, my number two is going to be some controversy, I know, especially with you guys that are uh, experts at this kind of thing, but okay. I love Shaun of the Dead. I've loved <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> yeah. Shaun of the Dead's amazing. I, it's, it's number two because I, I've loved it ever since I saw it. It's I don't think that those guys have done, and by those guys, I, I mean the, the two lead actors, I don't think that they have done anything like that. They've done a couple of movies after that, but I think that that was their best by far. The jokes playing off of each other, uh, the cell phone while the zombies are coming to get you. It's just <laughs> all of that stuff put together. It, it was just a smash for me. I love that film. I watch it every Halloween, and I don't see that stopping in the near future. <laughs> uh, I, I do. I, I'm not the biggest fan of it, but I love that first half. That first half before they go into the Winchester is just like one of the best like zombie things I've ever seen. Yeah, it, no, it, to say it's not one of the best zombie movies mm -hmm. ever made is, again, that, that denial that I just would love to have explained to me. Mm -hmm. But no, it is clearly one of the best zombie movies ever made. It's it's so well written, but you're gonna have that with uh, who's Stephen Wright or no, not Stephen Wright. Why uh, did I say Stephen Wright? There's Simon Pegg. Uh, no, who's Nick the writer? Frost? Oh, uh, Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright. Thank you. Edgar Wright films. I like Hot Fuzz better. I think it's yeah, tighter. Hot, yeah, Hot Fuzz is mine too. Yeah, but but I fully acknowledge that Shaun of the Dead is an amazing film. And my number one. My number one for me is there's a lot of nostalgia behind this. I grew up watching these movies. Uh, I, I love them. It's just the Rocky franchise in general to me is they're, they're great movies. And I'm one of the few that actually liked Rocky Five. I'm fully willing to admit it's the worst movie in the series, even given the new ones. But I love Rocky. I think it's great. It's 
especially the first one, uh, Sylvester Stallone started mm -hmm. off from humble beginnings. He was broke, and that's kind of his character. His character's coming up for the American dream, and Sylvester Stallone, as an actor, was doing the exact same thing that Rocky was doing. He was making himself into something, and, and one of my favorite quotes uh, from the, the older movies is, well, why do you box, asks Adrian, and Rocky says, well, because I can't sing or dance. It's just, <laughs> it's a great movie. It's a classic. It's full of heart. I love the movie. It's the ultimate underdog story. Yeah, exactly. And beautifully written. I, he still doesn't get nearly enough uh, credit for being an amazing writer, uh, Stallone. The concept that Rocky doesn't win at the end, again, spoiler he just had to, He just had to hold out He there. just had to hold out is just the best ending that that film could ever have had, and it's one of the best endings in film history. Just the realization that he won by perseverance, even if he didn't win by technicality. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yeah, really, really good selections there. Really yeah, good. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, John, go ahead and uh, give us uh, your all-time favorites. Okay. Um, I could have gone weird. I could have tried to be pretentious and went, oh, I love these independent French films. You'll never understand me. But I, screw that. That's not what this is about. And I don't even like those films. I, I just had to go with what was true. And there are going to be some in here that, like, I would have to explain their thing. But in general, most of these, you could have gone to see them in the theater. All right. So, number 10. The Blues Brothers. Oh, yeah. That's I love the choice. film. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. We're sitting, again, in my front room. We're less than five feet away from a giant poster from the Blues Brothers. It was one of my... This Blues Brothers... Mm -hmm. Show you how much I've aged mm -hmm. over the years. Blues Brothers was the first or second film I've ever considered to be my favorite film. Back when I started realizing that I started liking more films than, you know, my friend who just liked whatever the new Ninja Turtles movie was. <laughs> you know, so... Love it. It does so much. You've got music. You've got comedy. Some of the best car chases ever put on film. Pushing Illinois Nazis off the bridge. <laughs> it's got everything, folks. <laughs> Cheese whiz. It has it. This place has everything. everything. <laughs> New Cadillacs are in. All right. A great film. And it, it's iconic where it's one of those where I am genuinely surprised when somebody tells me they haven't seen it before. It It isn't... A film as iconic as like, I don't know, The Godfather or something like that. But it is, it does surprise me when somebody says they haven't seen it. So, and for in a film that started off as an SNL sketch, yes, absolutely, SNL. Like people forget that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, all right, number nine. Because uh, again, it had to be in my top ten, and I, it ended up getting pushed back. Tombstone. Ooh, it's a yes. great film. Great, great, great it's, western. It's my. I grew up watching westerns with my dad. Now I hated them as a kid because, well, you're a kid and you hate what your father likes. Yeah. <laughs> but eventually grew to love the style. And I remember when I first saw Tombstone, and I realized that this was everything I've ever wanted in a western. It's everything I've ever wanted in to certain degrees of a revenge story, but it's it's realistic to. A degree that I accept for an historical retelling of yeah. something. Like, basically, OK Corral happened. Uh, these characters had these names. And that's about where the reality ends. But I'm fine with it. Amazing, amazing acting. Vel Kilmer is Doc Holliday. Holliday. Like, that... Everyone's like, oh, Heath Ledger was the perfect choice uh, for Joker. Um, weirdly, another superhero choice. Um, yeah. Robert Downey Jr. is the perfect Iron Man. I'm sorry, no. Perfection is Vel Kilmer as Doc Holliday. 
because oh, he was literally living that, that lifestyle yes. in real life. <laughs> Amazing. For quotability, and not that that's a factor a movie has to have, but it helps make you remember. There are so many quotable lines in that movie, and people forget about all mm. of them. It's great. I highly suggest people rewatch that film because there's so many little moments that you probably missed. Trust me, I've seen the film hundreds of times. And that's probably not an exaggeration. Uh, and I like to think of it as a prequel to Bone Tomahawk. <laughs> you could think that, I could think. Bone Tomahawk taking a hard right turn into horror. All right. But you could think that. No, Tombstone, great, great film. All right. Number seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is another film that was... At, this is the first film I ever went, this is my favorite film. If somebody asked me, I'm like, I know... This is the one I want to tell them. It was only eventually dethroned by Blues Brothers later in my life. I remember the day I first saw it. I can tell you everything about it. Young Frankenstein. Mm, it's a great movie. It's, oh, yeah. Classic. Yes. A lot of people like Mel Brooks's best film is uh, Blazing Saddles. Saddles. For me, uh-uh. Mm-hmm. It's Young Frankenstein. Every choice made in that movie is the smart, the right choice from being black and white to making fun of the the and minimal everything. music, just like the, the minimal, old school yeah. Universal films. Everything about the film was great, and of course, when I saw it originally, I just assumed it was much older because it was black and white, and I was young and didn't realize. But Gene Wilder at his comedic <laughs> best, every single scene. Again, quotability. It's again not super important, but this movie is infinitesimally quotable. Uh, and the two scenes that get me every time. One is Gene Hackman as the blind hermit. Oh, uh, yes. And I was going to make espresso. And the bookcase sequence. Oh, oh. I should listen very carefully. Put the candle back. back. For, uh, uh, Flab Luka. <laughs> it's just, it's, to this day amongst my friends, if I say Flab Luka, they're going to win you like a horse. And it's here's the thing, works. I think Fabruja is actually the German word for glue, which is I why the horses is. were named. I think yeah. it is, yes. <laughs> Alright. Number six. Now, number six is the one that almost didn't make it on the list. Even though it's only number six, it wouldn't get... Number six is the only one that has controversy on my list. Because number six is the one that, as it gets older, is the one I have a harder and harder time justifying being something I support as Mm -hmm. a film. But it would be disingenuous to say that it is not one of my favorites for its storytelling, cinematography, acting, and everything. It's also, it's my one super nostalgic pick because it was related to a moment in my life that was important to me. The Ninth Gate by Roman Mm -hmm. Polanski. And there's our first controversy. Starring Johnny Depp, and as stuff comes out, a little bit more controversy there on top yeah. of it. So it's on a, an amazing film. It's the greatest thriller, I think, of all time. It is arguably one of the best supernatural films, I guess you can say, of all time, because there are supernatural mm-hmm. events happening in the film. It is incredibly compelling in what it is doing. It is, I'm not going to run down the whole plot or anything. I highly suggest look at it, but functionally, Johnny Depp is a man who gets hired to, he's a rare book finder and collector and dealer, and he gets hired by Franklin Gellia's rich business, you know, editorial business owner uh, to find multiple copies of a book called The Ninth Gate, which supposedly was written by a man who is possessed by Satan himself, or herself, or what, itself. Mm-hmm. And if you re if you pull certain pages out with art on them and assemble them and say some magic words you will summon satan and get what anything you want but the way he was made oh, there are only four copies of this book that exist in the world and 
you have to get the books because different prints were changed to you know mm -hmm. make them safe. So you have to assemble all of them and rip out the certain pages and just that story and how he goes about it. As the world changes from this world of Johnny Depp's character being this evil, greedy, horrible little bastard to realizing he's far above his head and he is not evil and greedy. The world is a much worse place and there are people out there doing much worse things. It is just amazing. I love the film, but again, it's the one where I, I, I don't know if, if you ask me in a year or two if this is still going to be on my list, it might end up mm. just having to get dropped because I'm like, I, I don't want to defend it. I don't yeah, want to. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. It's like part of, the, part of the reason why I have a hard time going back to like Baby Driver or, or any, Seven, yeah. just with Kevin Spacey. Ke yes, so. Seven's a great film, but again, I did the Kevin Spacey thing. I'm like, I can't do it. Yeah. I can't. That, is the that is the line, and it is a moving line, but that is the line in the center. I'm like, I can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. They found out what was in the box, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Uh. All right, so number five. Or, wait, I think I misnumbered there. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Eight, seven, six, five. No, number five, yeah, okay. okay. John Carpenter's The Thing. Mm, just like that. This is the go to example when it comes to practical effects. Yes. Th yeah, this is the greatest practical effects film of all time. The Who Done It. I don't know how many times I've watched this film, and I will rewatch it, and I would love to have a conversation with somebody about who they think the, film, the, the, the creature is at any one time. Mm -hmm. You can still dissect this film. I it is a I I call it like a living film in the fact that like I can still talk about it and rewatch it with a new set of eyes because mm -hmm. I'm seeing new things, and it's been out for years. I watch it almost every Halloween. I watch it other times. It's just a phenomenal film. The directing, the music, everything about it is great. It's the best Lovecrafty movie. That's not directly linked to Lovecraft. <laughs> yeah, better than most linked to Lovecraft. It's better than all linked to Lovecraft, in my opinion. And again, if if for nothing else, it's just the visual effects the, mm -hmm. that just take it to another level. Robotine just knocked it out of the park. Knocked it out of the planet. It's in mm -hmm. orbit. Like it's crazy. All right. And again, I think wait, let's see. Blues Brothers was ten. Yep. Tombstone was nine. Mm -hmm. Young Frankenstein was eight. Ninth Gate was. Seven. Seven. John Carpenter's was six. six. I apologize. Okay. I miscounted, folks. Okay. okay, so five is Pool Hall Junkies. Now, this is my 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 most obscure film, as it is a smaller... I don't think that one actually was in theaters. A uh, movie about a uh, pool hustler. Uh, got a couple... Not anyone super notable. Um, most notably is Christopher Walken has a, has a role. Uh, but it's a great film of a guy who... As a kid, was a pool hall prodigy, kind of raised up, taken under the wing by uh, the loan shark, effectively, and just that's where he's lived his entire life. And now, eventually, he puts himself in a position where he needs to get some money for some friends. It's the he's not planning on retiring. It's anything. It's not that last bank heist before yeah. thing, that trope. But he puts himself in a position where he needs to get his brother out of a problem, and pool. He's going to do that by playing pool. It is. It's amazingly acted for people that don't have a large depth of acting behind them. It's everything about the film is great. The story is amazing. It's funny. It's it's passionate. It's everything it needs to be to be a great film and a movie that if I hadn't randomly stumbled upon because even a name like Pool Hall Junkies doesn't even sound that mm -hmm. good. Sounds like a heroin addict kind of thing. And yeah. It's not. It's it's just a great little film. It's got a lot of weird little cameos by actors who I think were just like, oh, the director knows them. Can you be on the set for like a day kind of thing? Mm -hmm. But they're not cameos. They they have a role. It's just they're not a big one. 
Um, it's just a great film. Like I said, it's probably my most obscure film. I, I think it is because it's one not a lot of people know about. But if you like pool movies, you think The Hustler was great, stuff like that. Color of Money. Color of Money. Mm -hmm. um, any of those kind of films, this is the best. It's amazing. And it's just a great film. I highly suggest it to anyone, regardless if you like pool or not. All right. So. Okay. Number four. Stranger Than Fiction. Every time my some... favorite Will Ferrell movie, and yeah. it's like I I cannot stand him in a lot of his other stuff, but this is genuinely good stuff. Yes, every time I hear somebody say, because Will Ferrell is a comedian that when it at least when I was growing up, when my friends, it was just he was hilarious and we had never a problem. Only when I went to college and after that did I start finding people who are just like they hated him. So I realized he's a hated or love him kind of guy. There's no mm -hmm. middle ground per se. This is the one where every time somebody, because I have a friend who hates him, and I every time. We start. I, I mentioned him. He'll. Oh, that guy's. A, he's horrible. His comedy's crap. I just like. Have you ever seen Stranger Than Fiction? Stranger Than Fiction is a. It is one of the best written films of all time. That is a bold claim, in my opinion. Now, it doesn't need to be to be one of my favorites. It, I just think it is. It's amazingly scripted. It it flows a narrative that I can't really tell you because it kind of ruins it. But basically. Will Ferrell, because it's a drama with comedic elements. Will Ferrell is an IRS agent who one day, for no reason at all, starts hearing a voice in his head, like a narrator. It's not really in his head, it's coming from outside somewhere. He doesn't know where it is, but he can hear it. It's a narrator who's narrating everything he does, like he's a character in a book. Now that would be an interesting, compelling story as it was, but then we also get to meet the narrator, who's a woman. It's not like a godlike character. She's just an author who has writer's block who's currently writing a book that turns out to be his life. And there's an interesting play of whether or not he is actually a figment of her imagination, but he's a real person. Mm -hmm. So it's it kind of like, as Joe was saying with The Matrix, it brings in this whole idea of what you are as a person. Are you nothing more than the impactful memories you have on others? Like, is that all you really are? And it, it dances around this topic very loosely, but very well. And how he deals in his way, it's not, again, it, it has comedic elements, but it's not really about, about, it dances around that topic just beautifully, and how Will Ferrell deals with the fact that if you woke up one day and just started somebody, and he leans forward and cleans his teeth unenthusiastically. What? Like he starts reacting to it because he, 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 he starts to have a breakdown and has to take some time off of work, but then he keeps hearing it more and more, and his quest to find that answer while still kind of working one job that he, he's doing and how these things go together, especially how it ends, is just, it's amazing. It's hilarious. It's dramatic. It's romantic. It's everything it needs to be. Everything short of horrific. But if you think about it, is that kind of horrific to wake mm -hmm. up and hear somebody burn? It kind of is too. So it's everything. It's great. And it's the film I always present to people who are like, oh, you don't think Will Ferrell's a good actor? You can say you don't like his comedy. That's an opinion. But you cannot say he's not a good actor after watching this. I think he's amazing. Yeah, when it, it's like, it's like uh, this is like his film equivalent to like Adam Sandler's you know, I've heard a lot of people talk about Uncut Gems, which is really yes, good. Yes, right, Daniel Day-Lewis apparently called Alan Sandler and told him he was a great actor, and that's... I don't know. I don't need an act, I don't need an Oscar if Daniel Day-Lewis says I'm a great actor. Oh, or you think of Michael Bay with The Rock. Like, people hate Michael Bay, but when you bring up The Rock, it's like, oh, I love The Rock. Yeah, exactly. Everyone has their one, per se. Now, I think he has others, and I can mm -hmm. bring them up, but that's not what yes. this is about. But Stranger Than Fiction is his moment of, no, I can act. 
I can act in this is a great film. And it's also funny. Mm-hmm. So, All right. Number three. Uh, this is the, the big hitters, as it were, now. Number three is The Sultan Sea. It's somewhat obscure. This is my second most obscure film on my list. Um, the Sultan Sea, it's weirdly also another film that's made amazing by Val Kilmer. Um, is the movie, and I can't tell you a lot about it because it gets ruined. Val Kilmer is a heroin addict. And he is covering, you end up finding out during the course of the film that he is addicted to heroin because he is dealing with a break-in robbery attempt that happened with his wife and she was killed. He survived. But then things start to unravel where you end up finding out more and you end up finding out more and you end up finding out more. And it is done so well that you lose yourself in the film. I Every time I watch this, and it's not a lot, it is, it is a movie where you can't just sit down with like and just watch it for fun. It's not, I don't want to say it's not a fun movie, it's incredibly entertaining, but you lose yourself in this film. This is a movie where if it's on and I'm, I'm watching it, somebody could walk into my house and start taking things I probably wouldn't notice. <laughs> I am in debt, I'm engrossed in this film. Because what you, it's one of those like, oh, we're going to show you a new twist, a new twist, a new twist, but it is done beautifully it is the best of the surprise twists Mm -hmm. but instead of just one big surprise ending you start he'll say something and then you're like oh wait i know that means this and that changes this and it's Mm -hmm. it's just done incredibly well and again i can't praise him enough bell kimmer's acting in the movie is just second to none it's he needed an oscar nomination for this film i think it just wasn't anyone's radar because it's a super i don't want to say a low budget it's just an independent film probably made for like two million tops so, again, and I don't expect a lot of people have seen it. But, anyway. My second most favorite film. The Thomas Crown Affair. Now, I prefer the remake, the 1999 one. They're both good, but The Thomas Crown Affair in 1999 is the best heist movie I've ever seen. It is one of the best. Kind of like The Salt and Sea, it's another one that has great twists and it keeps you on edge and you're always like, oh, he's one step ahead of you. And I, I always say it's the best heist movie ever made because, in my opinion, it's the one where at all times he's fooling you, mm-hmm. the actual audience. It's amazing. Pierce Brosnan, his best role ever, and I'm including Bond in that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's so good. It has an unofficial sequel where he's functionally the same character. He just isn't called After the Sunset. After the yes, Sunset. Yep. <laughs> he's effectively this. It's almost as like somebody was such a huge fan of Thomas Crown Affair. They went, "Can we make another movie?" Well, we can't get the rights to Thomas Crown Affair. Change his name and he can. And it, but it makes yeah, sense. Yep. And just film a new movie where he's basically the same character, kind of. Yep. And it's you, so good. And for Thomas Crown Affair, you know, talk about unexpected good performances. Dennis Leary. Oh yeah, police inspector. Yeah, so good, so good. <laughs> Everything about that film is great. If you love heist movies, I I demand you see it. And it was the film that introduced me to Nina Simone. So yes, yeah, yeah. so many good, so mm-hmm. many good performances. But um, again, just can't talk highly enough about okay. it. And number one. My favorite film, and it has been since high school. Again, my first one was Young Frankenstein, got dethroned by Blues Brothers, and then they got dethroned by this, and nothing has ever come close to topping it. The movie I've seen, possibly the most of any film ever, The Big Lebowski. Mm. I own seven different copies of it. Because they've released like hundreds of different versions of it. I, I watched it seven times in one day. Once that's dedication. That, <laughs> that, is, that is that is dedication. Um, Tom brother should send you a Christmas card. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Another copy. Yeah, another copy. <laughs> um, I uh, I just adore the movie. It's 
it's one of the most quotable films of all time, in my opinion. It's hilarious. There's enough going on where I could rewatch it and like maybe not discover a new thing because I've watched it a few times. I don't think that's I think that's beyond me at this point. But I I can watch it and enjoy it for a different reason each time. The story of a poor guy who just stumbles into a great big thing that's happening around him, but it makes complete sense because of Jeff Bridges' character mm-hmm. and his acting. Every single person who has a speaking role in that movie nails the role, and every single main actor in that deserved an Oscar. Tara Reed's peak? Tara Reed's peak. <laughs> Tara Reed deserved an Oscar in that movie. Because Brent can't watch, though. He has to pay 100 <laughs> Like, everything about that. Flea is in that movie mm-hmm. from Red Hot Chili Peppers. It's amazing. That movie is amazing, and I will fight you. Mm. If you don't like, like, I don't know anyone who doesn't like it. It's the only other film where I've never met anyone who's vocal about them disliking it. The only other film I can say that was Shawshank Redemption. I have met people who don't like every other movie I can think of. But I don't think I've ever met anyone who doesn't like Good Lebowski or admits okay, it's okay. Like I don't know anyone who hates it. I'll say it that way. It's just phenomenal. It's great. It's a lot of fun. And even though it's my favorite film, and I'm always out there looking for better films and stuff like that, I'm just like I'm gonna find them. It's the perfect balance of everything I look for in film. Yeah. By arguably my favorite directors all of right. all time. Yeah, yeah, that's good, great, great list, great yes. list. All right, let's see here. My number 10, uh, 2012's The Avengers, the uh, MCU. And you know what? If you had told me when I was like 10 years old that I would see a live-action movie with Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, Black Widow, and Hawkeye, I would have said you were nuts. And the Hulk? I would said you were, and the Hulk, yeah. I would have said you were insane. But Marvel pulled it off. And you know what? I have ever since this film, I've just never been as excited for an MCU film like I was for this film. This is the film that made me realize, holy shit, this is actually happening. All these different characters are coming together and... The hype is real. Yeah, it's the hype is real. Oh yeah. Uh, Number nine, Dario Argento's Deep Red, aka The Hatchet Murders. My favorite Argento film. Uh, This is the film that put Goblin on the map. Yes. Uh, Great screwball chemistry between David Hemmings and Dario Nicolodi. And probably some of my favorite kills in a horror film. Just the, the bathtub is really good. Oh, I was going to say the bathtub. The yeah. elevator at the end is... I don't know. I'm not, that's all I'm going to say. Yeah, Just the elevator at the end. The elevator at the end. No more words. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, number eight, Disney's Aladdin. There's Rob, a total shift there between yeah, those yeah, yeah, my list is all <laughs> over the place. So, yeah. <laughs> Buy a ticket, enjoy the ride. Deep red to Aladdin. <laughs> that's not a total shift. We hit warp speed on that one. But yeah, just... Three words, Robin F. and oh, Williams. Yeah. Yes, that's that's yeah. all you need. <laughs> that's that's it. There's nothing like I, that. Is in my opinion, Disney's. It's not my. It, it, because of nostalgia, it isn't my favorite. It is Disney's best though. It oh, is, yeah. just is. All right, this is probably my obscure pick of the list. Uh, Delicatessen uh, from Jean Pierre Junet. Yes, a great film. Oh yeah, uh, an odd mix of romantic comedy, post-apocalypse, and cannibalism. Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah. I was waiting for the and <laughs> cannibalism. <laughs> Uh, just really oddball characters like you think of Black Hole Sun where they use CGI to disturb people's faces these are people who can do it on their own yeah they don't need CGI for that no just great expressive characters it's like the it's like almost a silent movie but at the same time it also has like dialogue so it's kind of riding that fence that is a really good way of describing Mm -hmm. that movie as a silent silent movie with dialogue I Mm -hmm. think that nailed it Mm -hmm. Uh, number six, my favorite Universal monster, the Invisible Man. 
Uh, Claude Rains just yeah. kills it. A little bit of ham in there. Yeah, a little, a little bit. Of, yeah, well, he's preceded by Vincent Price. So of course, you know, yeah. of course. Uh, and just uh, the effects oh. still hold up after what now eighty years, which is now? crazy. Yes, even to the even even Jurassic Park is starting to age, mm-hmm. and and that and that this film is so much older. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Uh, my number five, my all-time favorite Kubrick film, uh, Doctor Strangelove, or I, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. It's the food fight, isn't it? That's just the food fight, but just Peter Sellers, three different performances, and you could almost not tell it's him. Yeah, actually, I had to have, I remember when I first watched it, I only picked out two. Mm-hmm. And somebody then pointed out, I'm like, oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you also got, uh, just... George C. Scott, he has never been this over the top. And originally, he just he didn't want that performance. He hated Kubrick for decades because of that performance. Yeah. But George C. Scott's yeah. arguably one of the greatest actors of all time. <laughs> and like George C. Scott is a man who who prided himself on his rigid adherence to dramatic mm-hmm. and morose roles. Yeah, is so over the top. <laughs> Thanks, I was the Jim But I'm not even sure that Michael like Bay would have hired him <laughs> after seeing that. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. And just the, you know, it's a continuation of Kubrick's uh, cynicism and fear of artificial intelligence yep. because that's essentially what the Doomsday Machine is. Yep. But yeah, this and just one of and you can't fight here. This is a war room. It's yes. like all these wonderful little one-liners and zingers. Yeah. Uh, number four, Sergio Leone's The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. For me, just the greatest spaghetti western of all time. In fact, Agreed. one of the great westerns of all time. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Agreed. It was not putting it on my list was difficult. Yeah, uh, it was scored by Morricone. You got Clint Eastwood in his prime. You got Lee Van Cleef, who was kind of you know passing the torch to Eastwood. Yeah. And Eli Wallach, just such a lovable just living the dream. <laughs> yeah. Uh, number three, George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Of course, yes, great film, great, amazing film. Big fan. I would say my favorite of his, oh, of yeah. his films. Uh, number two, probably one of the most quotable movies of all time, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Of course. <laughs> yep. It's only a flesh wound. Bit to scratch. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, just infinitely quotable. Uh, and, you know, the, it shows how this is a movie that people who go from television to film, this is the film they need to study. Just yes. Because, yes. I think, I think I remember the best way. I was. I never watched it until, like, Early in high school, I was at a friend's house, and they're like, "We're gonna watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail," and I'm like, "British comedy? That's not gonna work. I don't want to mm-hmm. watch this." And they made me a bet: if I wasn't laughing out loud in the first five minutes, th- that we could go do what I think want to play video games. Mm-hmm. Like, we could go play the video game I wanted to play, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't say anything. I think I got two minutes in, and I was just—I <laughs> don't even know if I was on the couch. I was laughing still. That. That whole sequence at the beginning, people point out like, Are you "Oh, suggesting coconuts <laughs> migrate." <laughs> that movie's just so amazing, just so amazing. Granted, I think the one problem is the ending, just the ending. But other than but that, but it's abruptness is absurd. <laughs> yeah. That's the best yep. part. Yep. And my number one favorite movie of all time, Ghostbusters, just because. Who are you gonna I, call? Yeah, I, it does so much. It has, you know, the horror comedy of Abbott and Costello. It's kind of like got that Tesla technology to it for sci-fi. Yep. Uh, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is just a hilarious knock on kaiju films. Yes. Uh, the screwball comedy between Dana and uh, um, Peter. It's 
And the the ending, uh, the confrontation with Gozer, just kind of has like that Western feel to it, like Witch casting this and Nancy Kid. Like, we're going against insurmountable odds. We may as well go out the best way we can. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. The I highly suggest that if anyone has listened to this and they don't have an opportunity yet, watch the Netflix series if you have access to it. Um, the movies that made us does a retrospective. One of the episodes is Ghostbusters and the stuff I learned from that I never knew. And I consider myself uh, a bit of a fan myself mm-hmm. of Ghostbusters and I was surprised by information. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting series. Yeah. And and also too, you recently had the interview with uh, Eddie Murphy on uh, Jimmy Fallon and he mm-hmm. went to some of his experience with Ghostbusters yep. before he left. So yeah, because he was supposed to be the third. Originally, yep. again, the, 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 the movies that made us, they were supposed to be Dan Aykroyd, Belushi mm-hmm. and Eddie Murphy. The film was written for them, and obviously, it it did get heavy rewrites at for several reasons. Obviously, mm-hmm. Belushi being the the first one, and then um, bringing on Harold Ramis, yep. which was I think a very important part of it. Yep. And then, uh, well, when Belushi left, they had to they they replaced him with Murray because mm-hmm. they had that that's what they realized was the next logical step. And with Murray on board, they got Ramis because of uh, Stripes, and. Um, it just was this, it was this, uh, this, it's, they stumbled into greatness, mm-hmm. but they, they stumbled uphill tap dancing all the way. Mm-hmm. Like, it was, it was amazing. Now, there are problems, like, only, after watching the thing, I'm like, oh, wow, you're right, that didn't work. Like, you can see, like, the, one of the buildings shake in the background because they couldn't get the effect yeah. right in time and stuff. But it didn't matter. None of it matters. It, it doesn't affect the film at all. It's still amazing. Mm-hmm. Horror comedy is best. All right. I appreciate and, that film even more because of all the things that were they had working against them that they yeah. had to change actors and the effects had to be due you know in a in a short amount of time and yeah. it, it just adds to the appreciation that they were able to make such a great film with so many speed bumps and so many problems along the way. Absolutely. And this was made on like a, a minuscule budget, like thirty million. Like even yeah, back then in nineteen eighty four, that's for, for the effects that it has. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and and again, like they cover that not only the effects, but LHM was the only people in town to do effects, and LHM didn't want to do it. And turns out they basically went like, okay, well, a guy at LHM wants to quit, one of the higher ups, and start his own company. So let's just cherry pick LHM from new people. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's awesome. We got money to start our own company. Oh, wait, we have two months to do the effects for Ghostbusters or we're going to fail as a company. It's amazing yeah. what was able to be accomplished. And again, not even talking about the hurdles, not talking about the backstory and stuff we didn't see. Everything we see on screen, I honestly think, except for the one thing that key, always keeps it off the top ten for me, is that there are some scenes that just are like, in retrospect, I don't think they wanted that in there because there's a lot of adult humor, and it's not adult humor that kids wouldn't get. It's straight adult humor that there's no oh, reason. Oh yeah, the, the dream sequence. The dream. I was yeah. going to word it differently, but the dream <laughs> sequence is the sequence I'm talking about, yeah. and absolutely, maybe that shouldn't be in the film. Yeah. But um, but no, it's it's great. It's infinitesimally quotable, and it's just a fantastic mm-hmm. film. All right, so those are our uh, top tens of favorites of all time. This is the one I actually want to see. What are your top tens? Because I know this is probably going to be the most different. Oh, yeah. It, nobody's really rarely going to have this, like the same, what, like three or four movies? I, I, don't, I don't know if we had any films similar. I think this is the first one we didn't have any. Nah. You two might have had one. Mm-hmm. Wait, I don't even know if that's true. I honestly I think. So. Nah. I think we all, this we had 30 films. There weren't any repeats. 
I don't even yes. think he yeah, had any. No. 40. Actually, we shared the good, the bad, the ugly, but other than that, that's I it. I think that's it. Yeah. I think the good, and bad, the ugly is the only repeat. And again, that almost was on my yeah. list as well. So that's like 39 films we all recommend you check out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, these are all great for all different reasons. And like, this is this is also one of those, with the other lists we've done before, because I think they're the best, I honestly do think you should watch it. These, I think you would watch them because I view them as fun or impactful or important. But if you watched... Let's say Pool Hall Junkies, and you didn't like it? I understand. It's good. Mm -hmm. That's not what it's about. It's about your enjoyment. So please, tell us what is the top ten films you enjoy the most. And on that note, we're going to close out. Uh, I want to thank Joe for joining us here. As always, it's nice to have a, a new voice uh, to join for the crowd to hear. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And on that note, we're going to go ahead and close out again. Feel free to give us your top 10 of all-time favorite movies because we, we, we want to see just how different your list can be from ours. And uh, this is Mackenzie Lambert. John Cleveland. Have and a good Joe night. Hey, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Joe. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> of course I have it. Go ahead, Joe. And Joe Spears. Have a good night. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of Mac and the Movies. Thanks for listening. If you like this content and would like to see the program grow, sharing this podcast would be an immense help. If you love movies, be they low-budget, obscure, controversial, badass, or any other descriptor you wish to use, just help get this show out there. I do have a PayPal and Venmo as tip jars, support media you watch or listen to, spread the word, or chip in a buck or two. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until then, this is Mackenzie Lambert for Making the Movies, signing off. Mm-hmm.